I'm Jonathan Goldstein, and you're listening to Wiretap on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 159. Today's episode, Games of Chance, in which Dan Bingham defies fate, Philip Roth embraces coincidence, and Cookie gets lucky. Strap yourself down to the gurney, because I'm about to inject you with a lethal dose of good news. Can, can, it, can it wait? I'm actually just about to try a little experiment for the radio. What's your big experiment? I'm doing a show this week about the role that chance plays in our lives, and I thought it might be fun to call up random people out of the phone book with the idea that everybody out there has a story to tell. And Look, Johnny, you're out of ideas. That's fine. No, that's not what... Chance is a cruel mistress. If you go picking up the phone and calling people out of the phone book and say, tell me your story, you know what you're going to get? What? You're going to get a handful of sand. You know, sometimes you have to give chance a chance. Don't, don't you find that there's something kind of inherently... Okay. You know, enticing about the Listen, idea? I mean, that Imagine yourself at a concert. Who's on stage? It's Yo-Yo Ma. He's playing for a million people. Now, you're in the audience. Do you, A, turn around, shut up, and listen to Yo-Yo Ma, the greatest, whatever he plays, the cello or violin player in the last hundred years? Or do you, B, turn around, walk through the crowd, and grab some random guy and say, hey, I got a cello here. You want to play it for me? Maybe you'll be as good as Yo-Yo Ma. You don't do that. You know why? Because some people are the great unwashed herd, and some people are the gifted entertainers. Yeah, but I mean, does, doesn't everybody have a story to tell? Yeah, that's why publishers ring doorbells and then just hand out checks to people to write books. Well, no, I mean, I'm just saying that there's kind of, uh, I don't know, there's almost a mystical element to it, you oh, know? Oh, there's a mystical element, yeah. Everyone's like Oscar Wilde. That's why blogs are so good. Look, I mean, it's something that I would like to try, okay? And you could be a little bit more supportive. Okay. That, that's you being supportive? That's the best I can do. What about the, you know, the first man who ever, uh, you know, discovered oil? I mean, you, you, you know, you just have to start drilling, right? Yeah, I think that's how he did it. I think he just walked out of his house one day with a stick and poked it in the ground until he was a millionaire from oil. Oh, wait, you know what? Maybe he got land surveyors and geologists and physical anthropologists and Lord knows what and found where the oil was and drilled a hole there. That's what's known as fishing where the fish are. You don't just sit in your stupid fire escape with a fishing rod and wait for a fish to bite it. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start making some of these calls, and I think that the, you know, the, the results, whatever they may be, will be serendipitous and something in the place of nothing. Okay, prove me wrong, Johnny. Good luck. All right, let's see what we got here. Good afternoon, sir. My name is Jonathan Goldstein, and I host a, a radio show called Wiretap. Wiretap? C'est quoi We're working on a show about chance. Arrêtez de m'appeler pour des conneries comme ça. Non, non, um... Hi, my name is Jonathan Goldstein, and yes. I have a radio show on CBC, and this week we're doing a show all about chance. Do you have any good stories about chance? I don't know what chance is. You know, ch chance like luck or, you know, fate. We are a matzo factory.
Hello? Hello, my name is Jonathan, and I host a CBC radio show called Wiretap. Oh, so you work for the CBC, eh? That's uh, my tax dollars at work. Yeah. yeah, Well, um, I'll tell you one thing, is that uh, I'm really pissed off about the demise of uh, Radio 2 Classical. uh Uh-huh. I mean, it used to be you could tune in, hear some nice classical music, you know, and the nice resources. Hello? My name is Jonathan, and I was wondering if you might have a story eh? to tell. You'll have to phone another time because I'm already late for supper. And I just, I just have to say, I'm sick of it. Bring back Jurgen Goff. Mm-hmm. Bring back classical music. Bring it back to my living room. Hello? Hi, I'm calling from CBC. I can't do anything about it. Sorry about that. You want a story? How's this for a story? Go f*** yourself. Sometimes, you take a chance and you go bust. But other times, when you least expect it, chance can throw you a bone. In an essay he wrote to accompany the 1994 reissue of his novel, Portnoy's Complaint, Philip Roth tells a story that he claims never to have told anyone ever. He was going to college in Chicago as a young man, and once a week he'd treat himself to a meal at a cafeteria not too far from his school. He had his regular table there, and one day, sitting down to his usual plate of roast beef, he discovered, right there on the table, a piece of paper that the previous diner had left behind. And typewritten on this sheet of paper were 19 unconnected sentences. As far as Roth could tell, there was no logic to them whatsoever. He figured it was written by some avant-garde poet doing some kind of automatic writing exercise. He pocketed the paper, And over the next year, it would turn up under his bed or beside the phone, among other bits of paper. And every so often, he'd return to it, studying it for meaning. Eventually, he accepted the fact that there was no unifying principle to the sentences, no hidden meaning. And if there was ever going to be one, any rhyme or reason to them, it was up to him to impose it. Roth writes, What I eventually understood was that these were the first lines of the books that it had fallen on me to write. And that's what Roth did. He wrote over the next few decades, 19 books, and each one began with a sentence as it appeared and in the same order that it appeared on that sheet of paper. So Roth wonders, what if the paper had not been left there? What if the busboy had thrown it out before he got there? What if there had been a paper with other sentences on it? Or what if he'd decided to eat at home that night? What would he have written then? Might he have written any books at all? Roth concludes by attributing his entire career to the workings of pure, idiotic chance. Now, do I believe this story? I'm not sure. But here's what I do believe. If anything, Roth's story is a metaphor for the chancy random workings of the universe and the way in which it is our job to bring meaning to these chance occurrences. The act of random selection is actually an ancient and powerful ritual in human history. And there's a profound ongoing need to find meaning out of chaos. This is Chris Gudgeon. He's a co-author of Luck of the Draw, a popular history of the lottery. And in the course of writing the book, 
He spoke with dozens of people who'd won the lottery. And Chris began to see a reoccurring pattern. Everybody I talked to, regardless of they, if they won a huge amount of money or a, you know, a modest amount of money, there's a profound spiritual experience that people go through. People seem to search to try and figure out what the bigger meaning to the fact that they've beat the odds. And what are the odds, just to give us a sense? Roughly the same as being hit by lightning. Hmm. Like five, six, seven million to one are your odds. And this is why I think it affects people, because in a world that's so secular, to win the lottery is almost literally a miracle. The odds are so outrageously stacked against you. So when you do win, it's like you've been chosen by fate, by something that's completely outside of ourselves and something that's not rational. And winning the lottery is like a validation that you are special. And so how do people generally respond to being chosen in that way? You know, there's, there's actually um, psychologists have identified something they call affluenza. And it applies to anybody who has a, uh, a sudden windfall, you know, whether it's winning the lottery or inheriting money or however you've come across a sudden pile of money. So there's this guilt that people go through. And I think there is that sense of why me? I mean, everybody I talked to, no matter how much money they, they won, uh, had a friend or family member turn against them. It's just like they're kind of rising above their station, and it annoys people. I remember talking to a lady in, in Sydney, Nova Scotia, and she was a hospital worker, and she won ten grand. That's all she won. And she was getting angry notes from people like, you should quit your job. You don't need this money. And, and there was a great story about this family in Smithers who won, I think, something like $5 million, and they'd go into a restaurant, uh, and everyone would expect them to, to pay and so they wound up moving out of Smithers, B.C. Um, so there, there is definitely resentment. And, you know, this is a society that rewards hard work. Well, yeah. that's not true, but that's the myth. And lotteries fly in the face of that, and it bugs people because we want hard work to be the reason for everything. But, I mean, the fact is most wealthy people, not all wealthy people, but most wealthy people come from wealthy families. So the reality of our economic system is that hard work is rewarded to a certain degree, but luck is actually the key factor. You're lucky who your parents are, who your grandparents are, or even further back. So, I mean, lotteries is, is actually just a recognition of the fact that luck is the most important factor in everything. Neil Pasricha has a blog where he lists the top 1,000 awesome things in the world. The last day of school makes the list, along with going through a car wash with little kids, as does that moment of finding ice cream left at the bottom of your cone, or that other momentous moment when you finally figure out how your hotel shower faucet works. But coming in at the top of the awesome countdown is the mere fact that we exist. Because when you think about it, writes Neil, of the millions of stars and galaxies, Earth might be the only place that can support life. Earth could easily have been a clump of sulfur gas lying in darkness forever. But it isn't. And making it all even flukier, on this planet, we started off as sperm, 
And for the right sperm to have met the right egg means your mom had to have met your dad. But it's not just them. Think about how many people had to meet, fall in love, and make love for you to be here. Neil breaks it down as such. Your 19th century grandma met your 19th century grandpa down at the candle making shop. She liked his mutton chops and he thought she looked cute churning butter. Your middle ages grandpa met your middle ages grandma while they both poured hot oil from the castle turrets on pillaging Vikings. She liked his grunts and he thought the flowers in her hair made her heaving bosoms jump out. Your Ice Age grandpa crossing the Bering Bridge in a woolly mammoth fur met your Ice Age grandma dragging a club in the opposite direction. He liked her saber-toothed necklace and she dug his unibrow. Before they had you, Neil writes, none of your ancestors were unlucky enough to have drowned in a pond, to have gotten strangled by a python, or to have skied into a tree. None of your ancestors choked on a peach pit, were trampled by buffalo, or got their tie stuck in an assembly line. You are the product of years and years of survivors who all had to defy the odds and meet each other in order to eventually make you. And if all that isn't enough to make you feel pretty lucky, once you're born, that's when the real spin of the wheel begins. Because as chancy as all that procreation stuff is, it still doesn't necessarily determine who will love you and who will raise you. As a baby, I was adopted by Marie and Owen, who actually got divorced about 18 months after they adopted me. This is Dan Bingham, and after his adoptive parents divorced, he was raised by Marie and her new boyfriend, John. John was a, you know, an overweight hoarder. Our apartment was always a, a disgusting mess. <laughs> As a kid, I used to uh, around Christmas time, I used to be embarrassed that Santa would come into our apartment and, and judge us. And it was a, it was a painfully strict upbringing. John, um, he was the law. He was the law of the house. Breaking any one of his rules usually resulted in some form of slap or punch or something. Like, like punching, like where? In the face, in the arm, or backhand of the head. Saturday mornings when I'd go to watch cartoons, mm -hmm. I mean, he'd be lying across the floor and one of his feet would be up on a chair. So I'd have to crawl over these legs and I could tell it was going to be a good day if his foot was on the lower part of the chair because then I would crawl over without waking him up. But if I had to crawl over his leg that was up on the, the armrest, I'd always wake him up huh. and then just trouble would start. When things were bad in my life, there was often, what, how did I end up with these people? You know, of all, of all the couples, you know, of, of, like in Canada, there's like an eight-year waiting list. Hmm. You know, so how did I end up with these people? Why them? You know, in, inside, I knew that I came from other people, and I knew there was other, there was different blood coursing in my veins. And, uh, I mean, I'd grown up my entire life with this fantasy of who my biological mother might have been. All I was told was that she was uh, 17, Scottish, and loved to ski. So whenever, whenever images of her would pop up, you know, I would kind of picture this young Scottish girl with ski poles and goggles. And I've heard it said from other people 
who aren't adopted, who might have had a crummy childhood, they wonder if they were adopted. Mm -hmm. And they might even try to latch on to that kind of fantasy. So uh, I guess in that sense, I was, I was lucky to have that as a kind of hope that maybe one day we'd meet and that it would be better. When I, was, when I turned 18, that's when you're allowed to start searching for your biological parents. Uh-huh. So I did fill out the forms to go looking for them, but in the end I didn't. How come? I got scared that either my biological mother wouldn't want to meet me or, you know, she was a drug addict or, or she was dead or something terrible. So I decided I'd rather live the rest of my life with this fantasy in my head mm-hmm. than discover something awful. Little did I know that at that same time, she started the search for me. And about five years later, when I was 23, I got a phone call one day from this search agency saying that my biological mother was looking for me and if I wanted to meet her. And, uh, I mean, of course, I said yes. And um, pretty soon I'm on, a, I'm on a train to Ottawa to meet my biological mother. I get to the train station, and we had basically decided not to describe ourselves to see if we could kind of find each other naturally. So I, I remember coming up the escalator, and there was this huge group of people, and... Um, and our, our, our eyes pretty much found each other right away, right away. And, uh, you know, we kind of awkwardly hug each other hello. Uh, we went to grab lunch, and we just started chatting just, you know, about everything and everything, basically the history of our lives over lunch. My biological mother comes from a huge Scottish family. So this giant backyard barbecue was organized where I would get to meet everybody all at once. So I get to this barbecue and and everyone's checking me out. Like they're trying to see who, you know, where my eyes came from. And I was doing the same thing back to them, except I was only looking for one thing, which was uh, hair. Yeah, yeah, nice to meet you. This is all very magical. Is anybody bald? And good, uh, <laughs> good heads of hair all around? Full heads of hair. I mean, a lot of, a lot of grays, uh-huh. but just full heads of hair across the board. Uh, I mean, we all got along right away. We had so much in common. It really was like meeting my people. And it turns out that my whole family, they all sing and dance and play music. And then at one point, uh, my uncle Vincent um, starts to play Danny Boy. Danny, that, that's your namesake. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, the whole backyard is, is singing Danny Boy. And uh, when you've spent your entire life feeling like an outsider, sitting there with all these people who look like you and, and they're singing Danny Boy. I was a weeping boy. Let's just put it that way. It was just a, an overwhelming feeling of finally belonging. (laughs) 
Cookie, do, do you think of yourself as someone who has good luck? Are you kidding me? I'm like one of the luckiest people I've ever met. You really think of yourself that way? Yeah, you know, I can't remember a time I wasn't lucky. You know, there's always been some kind of a, a halo around me, like I've been chosen. You know, a couple, uh, I don't know if you know where I sleep, but uh, I used to sleep at this hotel. It was a motel, actually. And uh, whatever, the manager and I used to be kind of tight, and then we didn't get along the more after he, like, I spurned his, his I'm going to say it's because I spurned his advances. Okay. For whatever reason, he, he asked me to leave the hotel, and so I was like, fine, I'll leave, but I'm not going to go far. And I, you know, I sleep in my car behind the hotel. You know, a week ago, there's a fire, an electrical fire, something with the vending machine, and uh, the whole hotel burns down. I would have been in the hotel if I hadn't been kicked out. That, my friend, is lucky. Okay, well, the first question is, you, you were, I, I didn't mishear you. You said that you, sl- you would sleep in your car. In the trunk. It, what, is it like a station wagon or? No, it's like a sedan. And you sleep in the trunk. I made it into a bed. But that's why I got to go for people who are short, because otherwise they don't fit in the trunk. I mean, this isn't a permanent... Re- I mean, you don't receive your mail to the trunk of your car. I don't really get mail. I had it falling out with the post office. Okay, and my, my second question is um, how to put this. You, you, you didn't set fire to the motel, did as you? As far as anyone knows, it was the vending machine. I hope they had vending machine insurance. Is luck contagious? Are you able to bring good luck to those around you? Oh my god, I'm always breathing on people's lotto cards. I've heard of uh, blowing on dice. Oh no, I blow on lotto cards. I blow on horses. Horses? You gotta blow on them from behind to make them move faster. Are you are you a gambler? Do you, do you play the ponies? I do pretty good for myself, to the point that I can just go there and you can basically rent me out for good luck. You rent you out? How does that work? I will um, go with you down to the stalls, look at them, and tell you if I think they're lucky or not. How do you um, base this on? I mean, do you know anything about horses? Yeah. If it's uh, a brown horse, does it have black hair or brown hair? They have good hair. What hair? You're talking about its mane? I'm talking about the horse's hairdo. How the horse's hair is done. And what does that have to do with how it's going to run? It's confidence. Have you ever gone out of the house with, like, bad hair? You can't run fast if your hair looks awful. Even if you're a horse? Especially if you're a horse. Who else runs for a living? I've never been stabbed. I've never been cut. Nothing. That makes you feel lucky. Yeah. Because, you know, like, uh, I've cut a lot of people. And I've never been cut back. Except twice. What were the circumstances? One was like, there's a guy, this guy Vinny, he had a crush on me. And then the other time was with my ma, we were just play knifing. You and, were, sorry, uh, play, did you say play knifing? Yeah, you know how like when you're with your ma and she's like, oh, I'm going to cut you. And you go, I'm going to cut you, old lady. And you chase each other around the kitchen. She does a lunge and then you go to turn, but you didn't realize there was Kool-Aid on the floor. And so you slip in the Kool-Aid and then your ma gets you. Like that kind of thing. Like not a, not like a. Was, was an ambulance involved? My entire family lives by the credo. Never get in the back of a vehicle that has a light that spins around on the top of it. Squad car, ambulance car, fireman car. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Do you have friends who uh, 
who uh, you just pity because they have such poor luck? Yeah, I mean, I, like uh, my friend Sheila. Poor Sheila. Like, for example, Sheila liked to wear big underwear. You know, terrible luck with that because if we went shopping together and I put stuff down her underwear, she had so much room for it, she always got caught. So when you, you say know? when you say shopping, you, you mean shoplifting? You know when you go to the store and you take stuff? Without paying for it? Well, I don't have the money to pay for everything all the time. Do you ever think that maybe your, your luck is more a matter of the way that you see the world? That is what luck is, is, how, is what, you know, whether you think it's lucky or not. You know, I mean, there would be people who would think it's not lucky that I sleep in my trunk. I could see that, yeah. But, uh, you know, they've never been in my trunk. It's very comfortable. It smells like uh, my favorite smell is like gasoline. And uh, in the wintertime, I keep the car running, listen to music. You know, there's really nothing to complain about. Mm-hmm. Look, you got your friends, you got the bar, you know, if you get a bartender who can make really good shots, it's pretty nice. It's kind of all, all, you, all you can ask out of life, you know? You got some good music to pump to, you got a cute guy to grind on, that's all I ask. On Wiretap today, you heard Gregor Ehrlich and Chris Gudgeon, whose novel Song of Kosovo will be published by Goose Lane Editions in the fall. You also heard comedian Dan Bingham. If you're in Montreal, you can catch Dan hosting Sugar Sammy's You're Going to Rear at the Olympia. For details, visit danbinghamcomedy.com. You also heard Laura Cookie Craft and the wonderful writing of Neil Pesrisha whose latest book, The Book of Even More Awesome, just came out in paperback and is already a bestseller, which is pretty awesome. Wiretap is produced by Mira Bertwintonic, Crystal Duhame, and me, Jonathan Goldstein. Subscribe to the podcast at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest wiretap ringtone. You want a story? How's this for a story? Go f*** yourself. The greatest story ever told with every ring of your phone.